Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. This month, we consider the developments in engineering that have made our structures what they are today and the ways in which new technologies are being used to push skyscrapers to new heights. In this talk, structural engineer Roma Agrawal delves into the history of the materials and ideas that enables immense construction, reflecting on the accomplishments of key visionary engineers of the past and looking forward to the creativity and drive that will move engineering into the future. We're here to learn how to build a skyscraper. And the idea is that all of you will um, listen today, and then you're going to go home, and over the weekend, you can build one. What I'd like to start off with is some of the ingredients. So what are the materials we use? I'm going to talk about concrete, steel, and a little bit about brick. I also want to talk a little bit about then the actual process. So you need creativity, you need patience, you need lots of interpersonal skills. And you need a little bit of something else. You need a bit of vision or some kind of excitement about what you do. And I'll, I'll hopefully convey that with the stories of some incredible engineers as we go along. We'll then talk a little bit about foundations because, you know, it, this is a lesson for life. You need a strong foundation. It's also a lesson for structural engineering. And how to give it stability. Because the odd thing is that all our structures move. And when I tell people that skyscrapers sway, they kind of look at me in horror, but, but it's true, they do. So how do you keep them stable? And then we'll also talk a little bit about how to actually move up and down a skyscraper. And we can talk about the future at the end. So let's start with the ingredients. Now, I'm a little bit obsessed with concrete. You might find me in my spare time stroking concrete. I kind of walk around London with my hand out, just kind of feeling the different surfaces and finishes that the various buildings have. Um, concrete, after water, is the second most widely used substance on our planet. And that kind of boggles my mind. It's become such a ubiquitous material. It's used all over the world, no matter what you know, the different climates are and so on, because historically people used materials that were local to them. But then at some point, everyone started using concrete. And why do I like concrete? I think there's something really special about it because it starts off life as a rock. So you take something like limestone um, or you take volcanic rock and then you fire it, you burn it at really high temperatures to create a cement powder. And then you mix that with aggregate, which is small bits of stone, rubble. So you've got two different bits of rock there. And then you mix water into it and you create this liquid. And then that liquid is indeterminate in its form and you can pour it into any mold, any shape you want, and create what you like from it. And then it hardens, a chemical reaction happens, and it hardens and then it solidifies, and it might last you over 2,000 years. So I think that's a really special material. And an example of concrete that has lasted for over 2,000 years is uh, the Pantheon. And people often ask me, so I'm taking one question away from you from the end, what's my favorite structure? And that, that would be my answer, is the Pantheon. And I visited it twice. So the first time I went there, I was a teenager. I was you know, interested in physics and everything. And I just went there as a tourist. I loved it. I thought it was beautiful. I thought the columns as you came in were fantastic. I went in and I just thought, oh, the geometry of the space is amazing. And then you had this 
perfectly hemispherical dome. You had this shaft of light shining through. And you had these very kind of aesthetically pleasing recesses that you um, can see in that picture as well. But then I went again about five or six years later as an engineer, and then that was a whole different experience. So while I appreciated all those things I just mentioned, the new thing was, well, actually, how was it built? What was it made of? And how is it that it's still standing 2,000 years later? And, and that's what really fascinated me. So concrete as a material is um, rather fussy. So if you squash it, if you put it in compression, it's really nice and strong. And some of the strongest mixes of concrete, if you took a brick-shaped and sized piece of concrete, you could stack 80 elephants on it before it would crack. It's incredibly strong. And we didn't really use it that much. So the Romans weren't the first to use it, but they were the first to kind of use it on a larger scale. So we didn't really use it that much until the Romans came in. But even they started quite tentatively with it. They just put it in the middle of walls and then they covered it up because they didn't really trust it. But when they really came into the own, their own of concrete, this is the kind of structure they created. And the reason the Roman concrete was special was because I talked about the fact that you can fire limestone to create cement. What they did was find some ash, which is called Pozzolana, um, and that was near the base of Mount Vesuvius, so it was like a naturally occurring ash. And they used that ash as their cement, mixed it in with water and then with broken tiles and bits of stone to create quite a lumpy mix of cement compared to what we're used to now. And what's really special about that is, you know, this chemical reaction I described that allows the concrete to harden um, so that it can solidify, that normally needs carbon dioxide from the air to happen. But this ash, the pozzolanic ash, didn't need the carbon dioxide from the air, which meant it could solidify underwater. And that then allowed them to build these huge viaducts that they're so famous for, because they could put strong concrete foundations into a very wet atmosphere um, to build their amazing large structures. So what's um, really interesting about the Pantheon is, you know, we're very used to reinforced concrete now. That's what we use. We put bits of steel bar into the concrete, because I told you concrete is fussy. So compression, great. When you start to pull it apart, it cracks. And the force that you need to crack concrete to pull it apart is about a tenth of what it can take in compression. But the Pantheon does not have any steel reinforcement in it. So what they had to do to create this beautiful, perfect hemisphere on the inside was to make sure that it was thicker at the base than it was at the top. And that's because of the way domes work. So if you imagine a dome and you're pushing down on it, so you get the load of um, whatever it is, the weight of its own self-weight, but anything else that's going to sit on top of it, it kind of transmits and channels the forces down to the base. So that's all nicely in compression. That's all in compression. But if you look around you know, the equator of it, as it were, that is trying to splay outwards. So there's a bit of tension going on in a ring around the base of the dome. And the Romans understood this. So what we would do, like I said, is to put steel bars, and the steel bars basically tie it together like a mesh. What they did was to make the base of the Pantheon dome six meters thick, whereas the top of it's only 1.2 meters thick, but you can only see that from the outside. And then the other funny thing that happens with concrete is that as it's solidifying with this chemical process, it releases a lot of heat. So there's a theory, 
and I, I think this is a very difficult one to verify, but some people think that one of the reasons that those recesses were installed there was to give the concrete more surface area so that it could cool down um, in a more uniform way than if it was just this giant massive lump of concrete. Because what happens is it's hot, it cools down, and it cracks. And you can actually see there are old cracks from Roman times still there um, in the roof of the Pantheon. So, you know, really, really incredibly um, interesting structure. So, oddly enough, once the Roman Empire fell, the use of concrete basically ended for nearly a thousand years. So that we, you know, we call it the Dark Ages or the Crumbly Ages, as I like to call it, because they went back to using slightly older, you know, mud and brick and things like that. Um, but now, as I mentioned, most things that we make um, are concrete, and we can we can discuss a bit, you know, what the new um, innovations are in the material to try and make it more eco-friendly. There's a lot of talk about how much carbon is emitted as part of the whole, you know, use of concrete. Part of that, the, the sheer quantity of carbon being emitted is because we use so much concrete. So if we used a different material like steel, for example, it would probably have a similar impact, if not more. So there's a kind of a funny balance that we need to try and figure out with concrete. But we can use different types of ashes. So one example is in the basement of the shard, we used um, GGBS, which is ground granulated blast furnace slag, which is a waste product from the steel industry. And if you put that, basically that would go to landfill, so you put it into the concrete instead, and you can replace up to 80% of the cement powder with, with this waste product. Um, and that, that's what we did in the basement of the shard. Um, what that, we can't do that all the way up the tower because it actually makes the mix quite sticky, so it's very difficult to pump up. So then people are coming up with new innovations um, on, on how we can manage that. So there's lots of really interesting things happening um, in the world of concrete. So let's move on to the next material now, which is steel. So if we go back to around the Iron Age, so the Iron Age was thought to have begun in 1200 BC in the Indian subcontinent, Sri Lanka, India, so on, and Anatolia, which is now Turkey. And that was the time that they really started creating iron. But iron really wasn't used to make structures for a very, very long time. They used to make spoons and vessels and pots and things, but it wasn't used on a large scale. So we see evidence of iron being used in the Acropolis, for example, but really it's only there to tie together big slabs of marble. It's not there as a structural material in its own right. What's really interesting about this iron column is that it's about 1,500 years old. Um, once upon a time, there used to be a big statue of um, a bird called Garuda on top of it. And Garuda was, in, in kind of Indian mythology and religion, was, was the, the vehicle that Vishnu, who's the god, um, the preserver, one of the three gods that kind of sit at the top of all the different gods that we've got, um, it was his vehicle. And there was a big statue of Garuda at the top of that. So this was a commemorative column that the Gupta dynasty created. And that's gone now, that's been lost, but the actual stand is still there. And it's 1,500 years old, and it hasn't rusted. And there's no kind of external paint or you know, intervention done on it to, um, to proof it from rust. The reason that it hasn't rusted is because of the very famous Indian steel at the time, which was very, very pure. So the processes that they were using to extract it um, resulted in this amazing quality of iron. It had slightly more phosphorus than other people were used to, 
Um, and when I say other people, I mean the Romans, for example, because the Romans actually used to import Indian steel at the time. And the, they never knew how to make it because that secret was very closely guarded. And what happened with this is that they created this column. It's solid iron. So they did it in discs, put it all together, polished the surface, and then left it out in this kind of dry climate in Delhi. And it did initially rust, but then because of the climate in Delhi, the phosphorus, a very thin layer of phosphorus formed between the rust and the fresh metal and basically stopped it from rusting anymore. So it's just basically been standing there with, with its thickness intact for all of that time. So that's iron. Um, what do we use to build today? We use steel, and I talked about steel. So how did we make that journey? Why don't we use iron? So iron was used to build the Eiffel Tower. So we might think, okay, well, that's a pretty big structure. Um, it's, it's taller than the shard, but we don't tell people that. Um, and you know, what's wrong with using that material? So iron, or wrought iron specifically, I like to describe a little bit like um, the big chocolate chip cookies you get in America, which are quite soft. So it's quite a ductile material. If you put some force on it, it's a little bit flexible. So the kind of the matrix of atoms that forms the iron is, is fairly flexible. The atoms can kind of slide over each other. And then you get cast iron on the other end, which has a lot more impurities in it, um, including carbon, which basically jams up this matrix structure and makes it very brittle. So it's more like an Italian biscotti. And neither of these two materials is therefore ideal to build structures from. The Eiffel Tower can kind of sway and move a bit more because people don't live in it, so the type of um, parameters we're placing on it are very, very different. So why didn't we build with steel until the Industrial Revolution? It's because steel, even though <clears throat> it's such a close cousin of iron, is actually quite difficult to make. And the reason is that steel is basically just iron with the perfect amount of carbon in it to jam the matrix of the iron atoms just enough to make it strong, but not too much that it gets too brittle. And what scientists and engineers were doing at the time was heating the steel up, basically then trying to figure out how much carbon was in there, trying to take a bit of the carbon out and leave as much carbon as they needed. And that was really difficult because the amount of carbon varied so much um, from every sample to the next. So along came Henry Bessemer um, in the 1800s. And he was 17 when he moved to London. And what I really admire about him is he came to London as a 17-year-old boy and said, I want to be an inventor. And I love that. He invented all sorts of stuff. But what we're interested in here today is the fact that he was trying to create um, a gun. And this gun had, um, each, each bullet had more gunpowder in it. And he took his invention to the British Army, and the British Army said, yeah, sorry, we're not interested in this new and improved gun. So he then took it to the French Army. Um, we were on the same side in that particular war. It was the Crimean War. So Napoleon's army, um, I think that's right, um, look, had a look at the gun and said, well, actually, this extra gunpowder is going to cause the guns to explode. And so this doesn't really work for us. So he went away and said, well, I need to create a better material to make this gun. And so he created a slightly different furnace. So people used to, if you imagine just boiling water in a, an open pan, that's what people did. They heated up using coal, um, a pan full of iron, 
and then the carbon would get released or adjusted in its quantity, and he actually used a closed furnace, and he heated it up, and one day in his workshop, he saw that there were some bits of steel at the top which hadn't quite heated up, and he was a bit irritated by this. And so he passed hot air into the top of his furnace. And what he really didn't expect was that all these sparks started coming off it. There was actually all these explosions happening inside the furnace. And he probably had to jump back and allow this you know, big chemical reaction to stop. And then when he went back and looked at what he was left in the kiln, it was actually pure iron. And that really helped him, because now that he had pure iron, he could add exactly as much carbon as he wanted to create steel. And then there's a whole long story about how he nearly went bankrupt and lost his patents, and I don't have time to go into that today. But it was a really fascinating story. But essentially, because of him, we then were able to manufacture steel on a mass scale. So he knocked the price of steel down by a factor of six. So it became much, much cheaper and therefore affordable, and they could manufacture it on the scale needed to build skyscrapers. And that's when New York, Chicago, um, you know, these cities shot up. I'm just very briefly going to talk about brick. And the reason I like talking about brick is because it's so incredibly old and we still use it today. So most of our homes are made from brick. And it made, so at least in London, around London, Thames Valley, the clay that they use to make the brick is between 20 and 50 million years old. And then I start to think, well, what are the fossils? Like, we might have fossils of all these plants and animals that are now extinct, which then get converted into bricks. And then, you know, in my house is made from brick, and I just think that's really cool. Um, when did bricks first start? You know, essentially, we started with mud and with clay. In 9,000 years ago, in Jericho, in the Middle East, they were building these beehive-shaped structures out of bricks, which were dried in the sun. So this drying process strengthened them a bit. And then in about 2,900 BC, the Indus Valley civilization, which is in modern-day Pakistan, um, was flourishing. And they had a brick that they used to heat up in a kiln. And this was even stronger than these sun-dried bricks. And the 4 to 1 that I've got on that slide there is the ratio of the bricks that they used, which was kind of the perfect ratio in terms of the shape and size of, to handle it. It also gave a good surface area to bond it with the mortar that they needed to, to you know, glue all the different bricks together. And it also dried out nice and evenly. And that's not far off the ratio of the bricks that we actually use today. And I think that's really fascinating. So kind of 5,000 years later, we still pretty much use the same ratio of brick. Um, if I come back to the Romans then, the Romans really loved their arches. Again, they were the first really to use arches. And the reason they could build these huge viaduct structures that they did was because of the arch, because they figured out how to span really long distances quite efficiently. And the brick, and also stone which they used, but let's talk about brick, was the ideal material to do this. Because again, like concrete, brick is strong in compression, not as strong. So five elephants would do the job this time, compared to kind of up to 80 for concrete. But it was strong enough for them to build what they wanted to. And again, the reason is, so the little arrows kind of denote the way the forces go down, and, and hopefully you can kind of imagine that that means that every single brick in that arch is being squashed. And that's basically how, again, it's that understanding of how forces work on a material 
that allowed the Romans to build these incredible structures that they did. So that's just a little brief story about brick. So let's move on um, to foundations then. So the first force that we all have to grapple with is gravity. And gravity is so kind of normal, we don't even think about it. But actually, gravity is constantly trying to make every structure collapse. And that's the first thing that we need to think about. And the way we um, manage gravity is that we think about where all the weight is going, we channel it all down, and then we put it into some nice strong foundations, hopefully. And then the foundations basically spread it out into the ground below. So you can have as strong a structure as you like on top, Leaning Tower of Pisa, for example. Bad foundations, you have a problem. And you know, a leaning tower is not the reason I want tourists flocking to any one of my structures. So Mexico City has this amazing story behind it, which was that in around the 11 to 1200s, the Aztecs were roaming around the desert thinking, you know, we need to build a new capital city for our civilization. Where is that going to be? And the gods came to them and said to them that you should build your capital city in a place that you see an eagle sitting on top of a cactus with a snake in its mouth. And some of you might recognize that symbol as being on the flag. So they roamed the desert for about 150 years, and then they saw an eagle sitting on top of a cactus with a snake in its mouth. It didn't bother them that that happened to be in the middle of a lake. That was fine. They were still going to build their capital city in, the, in this lake. So what they did is they used piles. So that's one form of foundation we still use today. So they basically pushed in um, trunks of trees, large branches, and shoved them into the river, sorry, into the, into the bottom of the lake, which is up to about 30 meters deep. And then on top of that, they built a platform, and then they built this amazing city on top of it. So that was in 1325. And then the Spanish turn up in the 1500s and um, bring with them destruction. So they essentially raised the Aztec city to the ground and then started afresh and started building on top of it. But what they also did was to fill in the rest of the lake with kind of mud and stuff from the surrounding area. So if you think about it, if you take a bowl of water and fill it up with sand, you get a very, very wet mix. But the actual bowl itself, which is you know, the, the base of the lake, was a much stronger material. So you've ended up with what was described to me by a Mexican engineer as a bowl of jelly, which is what Mexico, well, at least the central old part of Mexico City is built on. So over the last 150 years, this part of Mexico City has sunk 10 meters, which is the equivalent of a three-story building. It is absolutely incredible. So if you go to Mexico City, like I was fortunate to do while I was researching my book, you will notice that a lot of the door frames and the windows in this part of the city, are not, they're not square anymore. They're all kind of slightly off kilter. And they have the Angel of Independence statue that was built when the Spanish left. And at the base of that statue are 14 steps. And that's because that, that pillar was piled down into the strong foundation of the bottom of the lake. And so the city basically sank around it. So this column grew taller, and they had to put steps down to allow people to still access it. So it's, it's just absolutely brilliant. 
well, not so much for the residents of Mexico City and their engineers, but it, it's, it's so, so interesting. So this is one of the biggest structures that the Spanish built called the Metropolitan Cathedral. And this was built partially over the site of an old Aztec pyramid. And we're still in this kind of bowl of jelly that I was talking about. So one of the more effective ways to build a foundation in this sort of ground is to build a raft. And it kind of does what it sounds like. It basically floats on top of the ground. So we do that where appropriate in London when the structures are a bit lighter, because as you'll soon find out, rafts can sink un unevenly, even worse. So that's what they did. They built this giant masonry platform on top of which they started building this cathedral. So even while they were building the cathedral, it started to tilt. But they built it, and then around the 1990s, engineers realized that some of those towers were leaning over quite precariously, and you know, a big intervention was required to try and save the structure. So a team of Mexican engineers, you know, geotechnical engineers that look at the ground, structural engineers, all sorts of engineers, got involved and said, how can we save this absolutely immense structure? And, and I think it, it's worth just clarifying that if it just sank kind of uniformly downwards, the structure above would actually be fine. The problem here was that it was tilted, and it was tilted so much that it was 2.4 meters taller on one side than it was on the other. So this entire thing had tilted over. Now, I went to walk around with this, and I went in, and I still felt like I was walking up a little bit of a ramp, and, and actually I was, um, because they did correct the tilt, but they couldn't bring it completely back, back to flat, because that would have started to interfere a bit with um, the columns and the arches and things. But what they did, and this was so counterintuitive to me, was that they built these giant shafts, so about just over three meters in diameter, so about twice my height. And they sunk 32 of these shafts through the foundation, so they, they made holes into the found, original foundation. These were filled with water, so then they had to kind of pump the water out. And then they went horizontally, and they made holes which were about 150 millimeters in diameter, so you know something like that. And, and they did hundreds of these shafts, go, um, holes going off the shafts and then they removed soil. Now, the thought of removing ground to stabilize a structure is a little bit counterintuitive, but super clever. Because what they did was they extracted far more soil from the bit that was high compared to the bit that was low. And then as the ground consolidated, the entire structure started to kind of pivot backwards. So that's um, pretty interesting. So I, again, I went in there, and it's obviously a religious space, um, but they, I was more interested in the pendulum that they have hanging in the middle of the structure, which kind of tracks on the floor you know, where that pendulum is hung at different points as it's sunk. And then they've got all these, um, now it's like wireless data mechanisms all around the cathedral that measures um, the stresses in the columns and also the XYZ coordinates so that if, you know, if it starts moving again, then they can go back and do something about it. So, so we've talked a little bit about rafts, and we've talked a bit about piles. And actually, to construct a skyscraper, if we talk about London, because we're here, you need a combination of both, because we have um, very poor ground in London, where we've got this quite wet clay, and clay is a funny material. When it's wet, it expands. When it's dry, it um, contracts. Um, 
if any of you have been to my house, I'm, I'm hoping not. Um, we had subsidence 25 years ago, and it looks like it's happening again. Not great, but um, basically because of the very hot summers that we've had, the clay has kind of dried out and there's a little bit of cracking happening. So we use a combination. We put the raft down and the raft takes some of its weight, but then we also anchor it to piles and the piles go down up to 50 meters past the clay into what we call the thanet sands, which is a nice strong solid layer that sits below the clay and then we dump some of the load down there. So that's the kind of um, foundation that's used for most of the tall buildings in London. So the piles, yep, yeah, so they work in friction as well as um, end bearing. And I think the reason I have that little picture there is because, again, this, this idea that skyscrapers are supported by friction is kind of interesting. Because you think of friction as this quite small little force that happens um, between two surfaces. But that, that, it really adds up when you're talking about skyscrapers. So let's have a little look then at stability. So we talked about the vertical force, which is gravity. That's the big one we need to contend with. And then we have a horizontal force, which is wind. And the other horizontal force, which um, I won't go into today, but which is even more difficult to contend with than wind, um, is earthquakes. So we don't have to design for earthquakes in the UK, but you know, the Burj Khalifa, tallest building in the world in Dubai, has to be designed to resist earthquakes. So that, and that's a very variable horizontal force that needs to be contended with. And the wind is also pretty variable. So this structure is the Horoglion of Andronicus. And I'm going to stop there because I'm, my Greek is terrible. And, and it's, it's a really interesting structure because we're going back again to the Roman times. Vitruvius was what we call a master builder because they didn't um, distinguish between architects and engineers at the time. So he was a master builder. He had to know about everything. And he wrote these 10 books on architecture, um, which I've read, because I'm geeky like that. And in that, he describes how you have to understand wind in order to build any structure. So it's not just how the wind interacts with the structure to try and push it over, but it's also the health, like which is the healthy wind, which way do you want your bedroom to face, and so on. So there was all these fantastic theories that they had, that you had to understand the wind in order to build a structure. And what this um, tower depicts, it's an octagon, eight sides. It's got eight different deities that represent eight different directions of wind. So that's what they did. They designed and thought about eight different directions of wind when they designed their structures. And today, we think about 12. So again, kind of 2,000 years on, um, not a huge amount has changed. And I'm talking about kind of our normal size structures for that. So, so we look at wind maps, we look at what the strength is in all the different directions, because you know, we've got different winds coming from the southeast, for example, then coming from the north. And then we design our structures. For skyscrapers, however, we look at 36 directions. So every 10 degrees around the circle, we're studying what the force of the wind is. Um, and luckily, we just stick those numbers into a computer now, because calculating all of that manually would be fairly painful. Um, and we basically go around the circle. We understand what the wind forces are. And then we have to design some form of stability system to resist that force. So there's a few different ways we can do that. The most basic way of doing that, we just learn from trees. So we've talked about 
piled foundations, tree roots, in other words. The trunk of the tree, as we know, sways. So what happens is that a force hits the tree trunk, it bends more at the top than it does at the base, it transmits the force through its body, and then the roots basically anchor it down into the ground and make sure it doesn't topple over. And in simplistic terms, that's what you can do with skyscrapers. So we stick a core, as we call it, usually down the middle of a building. It can be made from concrete, um, or it could be made from steel. In the UK, we tend to do them from concrete. In the US, they tend to do it from steel. And the reason you don't really notice it, but if you go, the next time you go into a tall building, so anything over even 10 stories or even lower than that, that's where your lifts are, that's where the escape stairs are, and that's where all the cabling, um, your water pipes, your air conditioning ducts, all of that basically gets stuck into the core because that's a nice vertical pathway that goes up and down the tower. And um, that's, that's a basic way to do it. That's the way we did the shard. And the reason we like to use concrete in the UK is because it's a much more robust material than steel. So it basically creates a much more protected corridor for people to escape. So if we very quickly touch on the World Trade Center towers, they had steel cores, and then they had some fire protection in the form of gypsum boards that basically sat on each side of the steel core. But when the impact happened and then the fires happened, these boards actually got destroyed, and then the steel underlying that got very, very hot and failed. And unfortunately, that's why everyone who was above the point of impact died, because they basically didn't have a safe corridor from which they could escape. Whereas you, if you have a concrete core, it's far more robust and can resist fire for a much longer time. And you also manage to restrict um, the places where the fire can actually enter the core. So this, this is slightly outside my area of expertise, but you know, concrete, concrete core is basically much more robust. But there's another way that you can also stabilize buildings. And for that, I'd love to introduce you to Fazlur Khan, who is this amazing engineer. Um, he was around in the sort of 1950s and 60s. And he was born in Dhaka in Bangladesh and was said to be a precocious, really clever young boy. And he was always causing trouble in school because he wasn't being challenged enough. And his dad was a maths teacher and basically um, would homeschool him in addition to everything he was doing at school itself because he was trying to keep his, you know, his clever son challenged. And Fazlur Khan wanted, was trying to decide, a bit like me, whether he wanted to do physics or engineering. And his father said to him that he should definitely do engineering because he thought his son needed some discipline in his life and that engineering would have more early morning lectures to go to. So I'm really glad that his dad set him off on a path to engineering because he kind of revolutionized the way um, that we design. So what he did was to think a little bit about um, the way they were building skyscrapers in the 50s and even the 40s was basically, they took a normal five-story building and then stuck another one on top of that and stuck another one on top of that and just made the columns much bigger and made the core and the stability bigger without actually thinking about, well, how is this whole thing working as a unit? Um, and that's what he did. He said, well, we've got these columns on the edges of the buildings which are going to hold the gravity load. Can't I use that for the wind load as well? So he basically doubled up the use of the columns on the outside. So I always use... Um, the ski pole analogy, which I get made fun for um, in the office. But I, I've only been skiing once, 
when I was 16, and when we first started skiing with my lessons, they didn't let us use the ski pole, so I could only I could wear my skis, but I had to ski without any other support. And you very quickly learn how incredibly unstable you are. Um, but only after we we perfected our snow plows, I think they were called, were we allowed to use these poles. And suddenly, I've now expanded my um, stability system because I've got a much longer lever arm to work with. And that's essentially how Fazlur Khan's system works. So if you imagine me standing on my skis as the central core of a skyscraper, he flipped it and said, well, actually, I'm going to use the outside columns as my stability system. So the forces that you get um, going up and down those columns is, as, is smaller than you, that you get in the central core. And this meant you could go taller using the same amount of material. So, you know, St. Mary's Axe, the gherkin, is an example of one of his... He didn't design that, but his system, because all the kind of the pretty diamonds that you see on the outside are not there just to look nice. They actually keep the building um, stable. He is most well known for the Hearst, um, sorry, the John Hancock Tower in Chicago. And then the Hearst Tower in Manhattan is another example of the application of his work. He sadly died very young, but I was really... Um, kind of excited, I spoke to his daughter, who's also a structural engineer, she lives in California at the moment, and she's written this incredible little biography about her father, um, and I interviewed her um, on, on my podcast that I did a few months ago. So I'm just going to then spend about five minutes talking about lifts. So I want to tell you the story of Elisha Otis. And Elisha Otis was a man in his 40s. Now I'm transporting you to New York and I'm transporting you back to the 1800s. And he was, you know, he never had really much of a career. He just went from one thing to the next. And he found himself working in a factory in New York. And he was basically carrying materials, usually waste materials, from one level of the factory to the next. And it was hurting his back. He wasn't very happy about this situation. And he was a bit of a tinkerer and he said, let me come up with a better solution for this. So at the time, I mean, again, I'm, I'm going to talk about the Romans again, but the Romans in the Colosseum had these lifting platforms to get you know, the animals or the gladiators or whoever was going to their bloody deaths um, in, in the kind of arena area would be lifted up using these wooden platforms with ropes. But the problem was if these ropes snapped, then these platforms would plummet and probably the occupants would be killed. So he came up with a solution that was much cleverer than this, that you know, brought that whole safety aspect in. So this is his actual original patent drawing. So that's the lift box there. And then what he did was use a wagon spring. And, a, and the wagon spring he used is essentially a kind of C-shaped curved spring. Which is, so it's curved when it's not stressed. But if you attach a string to the middle and pull it up, it becomes flat. So that's what he's done there. And then to that spring, he attached kind of these legs. And the legs have these feet that stick out. So when the spring is flat, you get a square set of these legs with the feet um, in the right position. But if the string snaps, the spring would kick down and also push out the feet so that they jammed themselves into a ratcheted guide rail. So the guide rails of the older lifts used to be smooth, and so the lifts would just kind of plummet down. 
But these ratcheted rails that he replaced them with essentially created a break. So he created um, the safety lift, as it's known, quite simply. So he, you know, he did that, and he sold a couple here and there. But then he took his invention to um, a huge convention, like, like they used to have in the industrial times, during the Industrial Revolution. And he set it up. He set up kind of life-size prototype. And he loaded up this platform with lots of weights, and he himself stood on it. And then he got his trusty assistant to pull on the rope, and then he kind of went up. And there was obviously a bit of a spectacle going on, so a you know, large crowd of people gathered to watch what was happening. And then he asked his assistant to cut the rope, and it was very dramatic, you know, kind of a big axe. And then he swung the axe and cut the rope, and then you know, the crowd gasps, and the platform starts to fall. But after only a few inches, it stopped. And then the story goes that Elisha Otis said, all safe, gentlemen, all safe. Um, presumably women weren't interested in machines at the time. And he basically then was able to create his kind of his patents and his product, and it started to get installed uh, all over the US. Um, I'm told that the lift, there's an Otis lift out here, and it was the first automatic one of its time. Uh, and Otis, you might recognize that if, so now again, when you take the tube or you get in the lift in your offices or wherever you, wherever you work, that you'll see Otis. And it's his company that he founded all those years ago that still manufactures lifts and escalators to this day. So in fact, the Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in the world, has Otis lifts in it, which I think is just wonderful. So there we have it. The evolution of skyscrapers that came off the back of all these different stories I've told you. Um, the interesting thing about the lift is, I, I hadn't worked it out this way, that you couldn't build a skyscraper until you had a safe lift, because otherwise how do people go up and down it? So it's kind of a strange thing that it was actually the lift that, and the steel and the other stuff I talked about that enabled um, skyscrapers to be built. So we had the pyramids in 2000 BC. The tallest one was about 146 meters high. Um, I'm told with erosion that's <coughs> come down a little bit. For thousands of years, nothing much happened. So what I've got in 100 AD there are the Roman insulae, which were the multi-story apartment blocks that they built. So this, it's not a new technology, living in multi-story buildings. They went up to about 10 stories, because again, that was the tallest people would go um, without a lift. Um, funnily, the cheapest apartments were at the top, and the most expensive ones were on the ground floor obviously because of this aspect of walking up and down the stairs. The other reason, because they didn't have a sewage system, so you, know, you kind of had to go up and down the steps with buckets of, I'll let you use your imagination. In the 1300s, medieval times, they started building massive spires on top of churches, and they usually fell over. So the pyramids were surpassed in the 1300s, but then they collapsed, the spires collapsed, and the pyramids regained their crown. So it was four, nearly 4,000 years later that the Eiffel Tower crossed 300 meters, so it was you know, double the height of the pyramids. And from then, it, it's almost an exponential curve that's gone up. In 2010, we had the Burj Khalifa, which is 828 meters tall, and at the moment, they're either in the process of building or designing 
kilometer high towers in the Middle East, which is pretty incredible. So just maybe a few last thoughts on what the future holds for structural engineering. One of the re I mean, you might think, you know, I've, I've talked about brick, 50 million years old material, technology you've been using be, has been around for 10,000 years, concrete's been around for thousands of years, steel's been around for hundreds of years, and we still use those materials. And whenever I go to these future of construction type symposiums or conferences or whatever, they show, me, they show videos without fail of these really cool robots building out of brick. And I say, well, why are we still using brick? You know, what is the kind of the next actual material that we're going to use? And I don't know what the answer to that is, but people are looking at, you know, carbon nanotubes, carbon fibers, um, graphene, derivatives of that sort of things, which are really, really incredibly strong, much stronger than steel. So it'll be interesting to keep an eye on how that goes, because I think initially probably they'll be used on bridges, which require, you know, really strong tension cables, for example. We talk about 3D printing, so that's not only the components of a structure, for example, but also, you know, a structure itself. So they're looking at robots that can 3D print concrete walls. Um, I went to Berkeley University in California, and there was an architect there who was 3D printing little kind of plate-sized things. It's a prototype, it's a kind of thought experiment concept. And he was using resins that were made out of recycled rubber tires, made out of salt, made out of clay and concrete as well. Um, grape skins, because he was using grape skins which were thrown away from the wine industry in California. And he was kind of mixing it up, creating a resin and um, 3D printing these plates, which he then assembled into kind of igloo-sized and shaped structures, but that might be really interesting. Maybe we'll have 3D printers that can print off these little modules that we can put together to create our structures. Off-site manufacture is something we're talking about now, and we have been for years, to be honest, but it's coming back into fashion. And that's all about creating structures in a factory. So, you know, you may have seen things like the box parks, which are made from shipping containers often. So you kind of stack up shipping containers to create rooms. But obviously, shipping containers are kind of a strange size to live in. So well, you just make nice ones with you know much better size. You can make them from timber, lighter, more eco-friendly, um, much more accurate, much less waste of materials. Um, and you can actually kit out the entire flat or, or the student dorm room with its curtains and, and the chairs and the carpets, um, wrap it up, bring it to site, stack them up so the amount of time you're spending on a construction site, um, you, know, you know, intervening in communities is much less. So that's something that, you know, we're, we're doing right now. Land is a really interesting one, especially in cities like London. So one of the projects that I worked on was a piece of land that had a train line that cut through it. So it started off in a tunnel and then it came to ground level and it went onto a bridge. And there was two kind of bits of land on either side of this that had never been used. It was, you know, just been lying there derelict. So we created a kind of a box around the train and then created a structure around that. So it's how can we use land more efficiently? And the reason that is sort of now possible to do is because we can use vibration pads on the ground floor or on the first floor, typically. You put these vibration pads in at the top or the bottom of columns so that when your train rumbles past, 
these vibration pads kind of absorb it so that it's not transmitting sound and vibration up into apartments above it. So we're now able to unlock land which previously we couldn't build on. And that's, that's a good thing to do, is to keep the density of people in the city rather than spreading outwards. And then, of course, with robotics and drones, I mean, who knows what's possible? I know that there's a project with drones to be able to fix roads so that instead of having all these roadworks that we have, the drones can essentially fly over a road, they can map out where the potholes are or where there's cracks in the ground, and they can do that fairly accurately using different types of sonar and radar, so they can actually see cracks that have not even appeared on the surface yet. And then they're actually trying to train the drones to then 3D print into the potholes um, to fix it. Another example of where that's being used is in, I, I believe, the Tideway Tunnel, which is a new big sewage system that's going in under the River Thames, is being kind of future-proofed so that when it needs maintenance, it can be done by drones. So drones can just kind of fly down the tunnel and, and fix any cracks or document any leaks or whatever, rather than you know, a poor graduate engineer being sent down to do that sort of work. And then another question I get asked is, well, how, how tall can we go? And my response to that is, well, how tall do we want to go? We, you know, the engineering can let you go very, very tall. But it's how much money do you have? Is it practical? Um, you know, what do we actually want? Do we want people over a kilometer up in the sky? How are we going to evacuate them in case of an emergency? How quickly are they going to... You know, if, if I leave my flat and I've forgotten my handbag upstairs, it takes me five seconds to get to my door. How long would you have to wait to go back up? So it becomes actually our humanity. It's the social kind of sciences that restrict the height that we might go to rather than um, the engineering or the technology. So an old boss of mine always used to say, we can build whatever you want. How much time and money do you have? Which I think is, um, is, is a very interesting question. So I think I'm pretty much bang on time there. I'm going to stop there, and I think we should have about half an hour for questions. What would be the hardest material to build and building out of? So, so these, those kind of nanotubes that I was talking about earlier is, is actually what we think will be one of the strongest materials that will develop in time. Um, it's a kind of complicated question to answer in that it's not just the hardness of a material that makes it really strong for a structure. So there's two different ways in which structure can fail. So if you think about um, a column, which I can kind of make from my bit of paper here, if I, if I push down on this, one thing that can happen is that it can crumple, and that will happen if this material is not very hard. So you put a really nice hard material in there, and it won't crumple as easily. But the other thing it can do is actually bend. And that bending is actually more a function of how tall that is, how slender this is, what the shape of the column is. So you need to kind of bring together both different types of the way a structure fails. And then you can figure out what the strongest material or shape is that you can build with. But what I'll be interested to see is, is what material scientists and, and physicists come up with in, t in terms of these carbon nanotubes and, and graphene. At the moment, it's concrete. Do you have a least favorite skyscraper? <laughs> I, you know, it, I don't have a least favorite skyscraper. And the reason for that is 
even the really ugly ones, have clever engineering in them. And I'm more interested in what engineering goes into the structure rather than necessarily just what it might look like. So that's you know, a, a difficult one to answer. And, and I also think, I don't necessarily find a skyscraper on its own ugly. What happens is when you put lots of different ones right next to each other, or, you know, it, or it's kind of a strange skyscraper in, in a place where it doesn't really fit in that can make things look strange. Um, but yeah, there's always interesting engineering happening, so that, that's, that's what I'm most interested in. Um, I was just wondering, a building still built with the steel core after 9-11? It's a really good question. Um, so, I'm going to slightly put a proviso on this, but I think this is correct, that the reason they build steel cores in the US is because you know, skyscrapers, especially offices, are generally built from steel because it's lighter. Let, let me just kind of give a slightly simplistic thing there. So, so you're using steel to build the rest of the structure. My understanding is that the steel unions and the concrete unions, the workers, don't work with each other. And that is the reason why traditionally in Manhattan, in New York, buildings are either made from concrete or from steel. And so therefore, many of the skyscrapers in New York have steel cores, historically. So after 9-11, um, things have really changed. So the, the one thing is, yes, we're using concrete a lot more. So we, we did that in the UK anyway, as I mentioned. If you are still using steel, then the protection that they're offering it is far more robust. So sometimes you might use steel, but then you might put a concrete wall around it. So you're basically just protecting it um, in a much better way than they were on those towers. And the other thing they try and do to, if you've got steel cores, is, and we call it redundancy. What that means is if you've got um, three columns that will do the job, so you can put all the load down, and if one column gets taken out, and then the other two columns pick up the load, which was previously taken there, but that causes them to collapse, we would now make either the other two columns strong enough so that they can't take that extra load, or we'd stick an extra column in, so we'd put four in instead. So you're basically building in systems so that when the forces are coming down, if it's lost somewhere it should be able to go, it's got somewhere else to go. So you can still create safe steel cores by, by doing these two things together. But yeah, like I said, in the UK, we, don't, we just we use concrete. Any tips about how we might build structures on the moon? Oh, um, I was actually researching this um, for my children's book that I am currently working on. And the European Space Agency is actually working on this, so I am probably kind of telling you third-hand what's going on there, but they have some information on their website. What they're looking at is how can we build from material that the moon is made of, because why would you transport material from the Earth? That's silly. Um, water, another problem, we use water and concrete. So what they're trying to do is use... Um, I can't remember what the term is. It's something like revolute or something that they call the actual material that you have on the moon. Regular, that's it, thank you. And it's how, how can, can we heat that up? Can we use the sun's rays when we have the strong sun? Can we actually harness that heat to fuse it together to create a strong material? Or can we use some material which we don't need too much of to mix it in and then create a paste which we can then 3D print with? So those are two different things that they're currently looking at which I think is really fascinating. But yeah, the European Space Agency has got some research happening at the moment on that. It's great. Um, so the Pantheon is still standing mm. 2,000 years later. <laughs> um, 
do you think the structures that we're building at the moment stand a chance of <laughs> still being standing in the year 4000? <laughs> um, another very interesting question. So there's two things that need to happen um, in order for our structures to last that long. One is that we have to maintain them properly. Um, and we talk about design life. So when we build our bridges, uh, our nuclear structures, our buildings, there are different design life that we talk about. And that's not how long they will live and then they collapse. It's just that's the time after which they really would need some intervention to come in and maintain them properly. Um, so for nuclear kind of structures, you're talking hundreds of years. For bridges, you're talking just over 100 years. And for buildings, it's normally 60 to 80 years, depending on the building. And on that basis, it's probably unlikely they will last that long. And I think the second thing is climate change. So we are designing stuff for wind forces, for the ground conditions, and so on, that currently exist. And if climate change causes quite catastrophic changes over the next 2,000 years, so that, you know, say the wind speed triples, then our structures wouldn't make it. So I think those are the two things that um, we have to see. So in short, probably unlikely. But, but maybe the big kind of nuclear-type facilities would because they're essentially metres of concrete. Um, co concrete would last. <laughs> what changes can the construction industry make over the next 10 or 20 years in a transition to a lower-carbon economy? What, sorry, I just missed changes. The, what changes? Um, lots. So one thing we talk about is embodied carbon. What that means is if we're building a structure out of concrete and steel, how much carbon was emitted in order to create those materials. So that's one way to reduce um, carbon. And that comes down to kind of the structural engineers and material scientists. So I mentioned using waste products from steel, for example, that massively reduces the amount of carbon um, sink that goes into the concrete. Uh, different materials, so if we're using more timber, that's a much more um, eco-friendly material. So people are looking at, I think the tallest building they've now built out of timber is 14 stories, but they're looking to try and even challenge that further. You can even build a combination, so you could use a steel frame, but mostly make it from timber, that helps. So materials is a big consideration. Um, the other one is, so the off-site manufacturer helps a lot because when you're constructing things and building things quickly in a factory, um, then you're not spending as much time on site, you know, digging things out. The structures are lighter, you're doing less foundations, less materials, more precise, there's less waste. So that's a really good one. And then on, on the other kind of end of the spectrum, it's how much energy are we using to run our buildings. And I don't know what the percentage is, but if you look at the overall percentage of carbon being released by humankind, just running buildings is a quite significant proportion of that. So it's how can we have more efficient ventilation, not using air conditioning too much, um, you know, using natural ways to cool a building, natural ways to cool water, to heat water. So the energy side of things um, is also really important. My, my question really is, is why, in terms of height going up, and, and, and for whom? Surely most people really want to live not more than probably four four story um four stories up isn't that right isn't that a sort of human sort of thing that we we tend to want so so i think there's a big cultural aspect there so i lived um in a seven story building my my time in india 
Um, you go to places like Hong Kong, people are very comfortable living in high-rise. When I lived in Dubai, you paid more rent the higher you went because it's this kind of, again, it's views and it's, 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 you know, it's really lovely. So I think there's a big cultural aspect at play there. I think in the UK, we tend to prefer shorter buildings. That's not true all over the world. Um, my view on this is that in terms of these iconic buildings like the Shard, like the Burj Khalifa, like the Jeddah Tower, they, they will continue to keep pushing boundaries and keep building very tall. But I think in terms of living, if, if we take London as an example, um, I think we need to build more medium rise. So I think we need to be building more kind of six to 12 or six to you know, tw 20 stories even sometimes buildings because that stops spread from happening. And what we don't want to do is to spread London out so far that you know, you're just commuting for hours, that's not helping anybody. Um, and we want to kind of preserve the countryside and basically keep the population's impact as compact as possible. Then people often say, well, London's already very crowded. You know, how can we add more people in? So yes, we need infrastructure to support that. But I then also give the example of um, the density. So how many people think Paris is very dense? I don't think that there's a couple of hands going up. And how many people think London is very dense? No, okay, so, there's a few, so we still had more hands up for London than Paris, but I know there's a few knowing nods happening. Paris is twice as dense as London in its busiest central parts. And the reason is because Paris has these six-story structures everywhere. We have one or two-story Victorian structures. Um, but yet Paris, you know, I, I go there, I don't find it that busy. That may be because I grew up in Bombay, but, you know, um, which is fantastic. But yes, yeah, so, so I think more medium rise, you're going to get the iconic towers happening, but, you know, I, I want to keep cities, you know, compact, basically, and get more people in that way. Thank you. Um, excellent presentation. Thank you, Thank you. so much. Um, I was in New York with my family a week ago in Central Park, and there is a huge, well, two very, very tall, skinny skyscrapers. One yes. is going to be taller than the One World Trade Center. It's really, really skinny. <laughs> so I wanted to take you back to the point you said about the external, not the central core, which is presumably going to be concrete, but the external. Mm. There isn't any external, and it's going to be over 500 meters. Any idea how that will work. How, do they, how are they going to do that? It's just, it's, 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 I can't be more than 100 meters in diameter. I don't know what it is, but so it's think, very yeah. tall and very skinny. I think one of the ones you're probably talking about is 432 something. It's 111 57th Street. 50, okay. And there's one more called 432 something. And which that's is on next the, door, yes. Yeah, that's on the German edition of my book. Um, so they do have external systems, but you can't always tell because... You know, the gherkin has crosses, which are quite obvious, but these use the vertical structures, basically. And what happens is they have a central core as well as the external structures, and then you, you tie them together. So where, when I bring my ski pole analogy back, I'm using my body, I'm using my arms and the ski poles, but I'm also, sorry, I'm also using my arms. So instead of having a kind of a floppy connection between the two, which would allow that to happen, it's a, it's a fixed connection. So this entire frame would have to basically be engaged in order to create movement. But um, more than that, the other thing that they do, and I, I kind of glossed over this in the interests of time, um, is a tuned mass damper. 
So this is Taipei 101, which is over 500 meters tall, and this is in a place that experiences earthquakes and typhoons. Mm. Um, and essentially, they've got this giant ball, which is kind of um, suspended in a three-story space, so, so just to give you an idea of scale. And when the wind blows or an earthquake happens, um, this pendulum essentially starts rocking in a way that counteracts the forces that's acting on the outside of the building and, can, and helps to cancel it out. So it basically dampens like a piston does in our car or our suspension does on our bicycles. Um, and, and the really tall, super skinny towers will 99% have features like that in the building to help the sway. So a building can sway as much as you like. It looks scary. Um, but what it's really about is human perception. So we've worked out what acceleration humans can feel when you're standing or sitting. So that's for an office. And if you're lying down, if you're in a residence, and they're different numbers. So we basically, as engineers, have to limit the, this rate of acceleration that happens rather than the quantity that happens. So we do the analysis, we put these pendulums in if required, and we're basically making sure that the perception isn't there, that you're moving. However, having said that, people anecdotally do tell me that they feel that Chicago and Manhattan skyscrapers, you can kind of feel a little bit of it. In the UK, I guess we just don't have that many tall towers um, in, in the same way, so they feel more robust here, is what I'm anecdotally told. So can I, can I just ask about the difference between feeling and seeing? So, if yeah. so when you've got a nice glass skyscraper and then just regardless of whether you can feel it, if, if it's really tall, can mm. you see this movement and is that disconcerting or not? So I would say for the kind of towers um, you mentioned, you would be able to see the movement if you're at the top, if it's a windy day. It would be very slow, so you'd have to kind of stand there really still. But yeah, I think you could see the movement. I am, I'm guessing, because I haven't been up there, but I think you would. <laughs> so you mentioned the, that concrete was the second most used resource mm. after water. I read recently about the people actually beginning to not have good sources of sand anymore to mm. make, and bulldozers coming in and scraping off beaches. Where, where is that going? And is there a possibility of recycling our concrete? So if the building is only going to last 60 years, what are we going to do with all of that in 60 yeah. years? Was that on the 99% Invisible podcast that you heard that? Or it was, there was a Forbes article as well, I think. One or the other. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I really high, highly recommend that podcast, by the way, 99% Invisible. They talk about all these kind of design things. Um, I'm not involved in that, by the way. It's just, um, it's a really good question, and that was the first time I heard of it, so that that was quite news to me as well. And on this podcast, they were saying that there's actually like mafia that trade in sand, and there's crime to do with sand now, um, because sand is used a lot in the manufacture of concrete. And from what I heard on this podcast, so this is not something I know about enough personally, but the, what they said on the podcast was that the sand in, like, in the deserts of the Sahara, for example, uh, are very worn down and they're very round, and so they don't form an effective material compared to sand that you get on beaches, for example. So, um, yes, we need to recycle concrete. So the way we recycle concrete is we crush it down into stones. And you know I said when you make a concrete mix, you're mixing cement powder 
water and then aggregate, which I said was rubble, you essentially use old concrete for that. So that's how you can recycle concrete. Um, but I mean, it's all the more reason that we need to be looking for other sources of materials to use and, and waste materials that we can use in the concrete rather than trying to use new, you know, new materials all the time. So yeah, really interesting point and something that I would love to know more about myself. Great. The uh, question just here, please. Thank you. Thank you. That was most interesting. Firstly, the amplitude of movement that you might get at the top of one of these tall buildings. What sort of amplitude? And sneakily as well. Um, the um, use of timber that's being done now, that, that's not just pieces of wood. There's stuff done to it. Perhaps yeah. you could explain briefly. Sure. So to answer your first question, um, in simple terms, it's the height of a building divided by 500. That's the kind of the physical limit we tend to aim for. So a 500 meter tall tower would move a meter sideways. Um, most towers would move less than that because if it moved that much, it is pretty likely you'd be able to feel it. So we tend to restrict it. But that, that's, that's something that we start with, you know, back of the envelope calculations, that, you know, it's, it's a starting point. Um, your second question about timber. So again, it's not a material I have used a lot, but they're using things like CLT, which is cross-laminated timber, um, and different forms of that, in which they take um, basically thinner layers of timber, and then because the, the weak point in timber is, is the grain, that's what I'm looking for, um, depending on which direction the grain is running in, the strength of the timber can vary a lot in different directions. So what you want to try and do is make it as um, uniform as possible. So you basically glue layers of timber on top of each other and keep crossing the grains, so that when you end up with a beam that's made out of lots of these layers, that has got quite a uniform strength happening in lots of different directions. So that tends to be the material we're using. Um, and again, I don't know enough about this, but there, there are ways to fireproof it now, which are clever, and that we, you know, we couldn't do before. So part of that could be impregnating it with resins or chemicals, essentially, that makes the wood itself um, quite fire resistant, but then there are other woods, there are lots of woods which, and I, th I think um, maybe somebody in the audience knows more about this than me, but the hardwoods, I believe, when they char, they actually insulate the rest of the wood. So what they do is they, they know that if, you know, two centimeters, say, of a beam is burnt, but they know that that much will then insulate the rest of the beam in the case of a fire, and so they know how much of the beam or column would be left, and then they can check that, oh, is that, little, is that remaining piece enough to stand up for X amount of time to allow people to escape safely? So these are some of the different ways in which timber is being brought um, in, into kind of the modern way of design. Thank you very much for a okay. very interesting talk. I have a slightly different question. Do you think enough thought is put into maintenance of these tall buildings when the building process is actually going on? How will the maintenance regime be conducted many, many years subsequent to the building being constructed? And have any lessons been learned from previous failures where maintenance has, been turned, out, has turned out to be a cause of failure? Thank you. Um, so maybe the second part, and, and again, I, I, I don't, know enough, but some of the recent 
bridge collapses that have happened. There was one in Italy, for example. They talk about a problem with the maintenance. Um, there was, I think that was a mixture of different materials being used and, you know, I don't think we really construct in that way anymore. So there was a question about how that should be maintained. So yes, there are lessons to be learned from maintenance. And then to answer the kind of the first part of your question, yes, absolutely, we have to think about maintenance right from day one. So in a building like the Shard, for example, um, there are these really cool little robots that have been hidden in at, at different intervals up the height of the building. So there will be days when you walk past and around kind of level 30 something, there'll be a bit of glass open and there'll be a kind of arm with a cradle sticking out. Um, so there's, there's you know, the bit which sticks out of the side, that part of the building has got some on the roof and then the main tower has got a couple of them. And at the very top of the tower is what we call a telescopic crane. And um, that crane was used to help build the last bit of the tower, but then it remains there, again, for maintenance. So basically, the entire surface area of the tower has been checked that it is accessible by one of these cradles and crane systems in order to be able to clean it and replace glass if required, replace the gaskets if required, and so on. Um, those are interesting to us as structural engineers because they're obviously moving loads, they're dynamic loads. So, you know, this telescopic crane at the top, for example, sits on top of um, four columns, and as the arm swings around, the force on the columns changes. So we have to design for that right in the beginning. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely something we think about. Hello there. I'm, uh, I'm a chemist, so I found the first part of your uh, lecture very interesting. But talking about the future and talking about graphene and... Um, carbon, are we ever likely to be able to build a cable up which a vehicle could go to a geosynchronous orbit at 24,000 miles? <laughs> I'd like to think so. <laughs> Someone once asked me what my kind of dream structure would be and I said a lift to the moon. I think that would be kind of cool. I don't know. Probably there's more complicated things about the rotation and revolutions <laughs> of the two plants which wouldn't allow that to happen. But um, I don't know. I think at the moment, one of the challenges we have using different forms of carbon in structures is fire protection. So I've seen a form of bridge that's called a stress ribbon bridge. And those are a little bit like rope bridges. Um, so if you imagine, you know, you've got two points, you suspend a cable, and then you put planks of concrete on top, and then you kind of tie it all up together. So that's essentially what a stress ribbon bridge is. And there's some research being done in Germany to replacing cables made from steel with carbon fibre, much lighter, much stronger. Um, and you need very little amount of carbon, you know, the thickness of the carbon is, is minuscule compared to the amount of steel you require. But they struggle with two things. One is that um, they haven't found a way to make the material so that it doesn't split very easily. So you just basically get these little cracks in the material, then it cracks, um, and then you've lost your strength. So that's one thing they're trying to figure out. And the other one is fire, so if, if that material gets burnt, then it just loses its strength. So I think there's one thing to talk about graphene and, and all these things as theoretical materials that are really strong, but then when you bring them, obviously, into the real world, then there's all these different practicalities that need to be thought about. So I, I, I don't know. I'd like to think that we can build some um, crazy structures in the future. But maybe just before we finish, I'll, I'll just mention that my book is um, built, is on sale you know, most of what I discussed today is from the book and there's so much more um, if, if you enjoyed that. So thank you so much indeed yeah, for a fantastic you. talk this evening. And if you would join me in uh, thanking Roma in the traditional way. That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. 
If you like this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a big difference. And if you'd like to support our work, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Royal Institution. As little as $1 a month and you'll get access to exclusive content, early releases and digital freebies. Thanks. Thanks.